got sermon notes this morning. How many of you can fill in all the blanks even without hearing what I'm going to say? At least one. Probably another one over in the corner. Possibly one here in the middle if you know. If you, if you didn't get them, raise your hand. Lorraine needs a copy if you would. So how many of you actually read your homework this week? Three people. Four. Okay, yes. We're, we're getting there. If you didn't realize it, there is some homework in your bulletin. If you read the passages that were given to you, you would have read through Genesis chapter 24. How many of you remember what has happened in Genesis chapter 24? What the whole theme of the Bible story is here? Nobody. Genesis chapter 24. Well, we'll go through it as quickly as I can because my voice isn't going to hold up and that makes Irma happy because we get out earlier. I won't keep you over time, <laughs> hopefully too much. <laughs> and I'm going to try not to cough in your ears too. At least not too much. Well, for the last couple of weeks, what we've been looking at is prophecy regarding um, Jesus Christ in the book of uh, Genesis, specifically, but throughout the Old Testament as a whole. And we've seen that prophecy shows up in prophetic statements. You know, the, the wall's going to come down, and then the wall does come down prophetic statements. We've seen the prophecy hidden in names and places, and hopefully you were able to, um, to get a magnifying glass and read that note page that uh, I gave you, because it was kind of small print, and if you need something larger, we can find something larger on that too, but uh, prophecy shows up in hidden in names and places and different things. And then prophecy is also established in patterns. And last week, we looked at one of the, the greatest patterns in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham was told to offer his son Isaac on, the, on uh, Mount Moriah. And then at the last moment, God provided a substitute to take Isaac's place so that Isaac was not going to be sacrificed. And in that picture, we saw what was actually going to happen almost 2,000 years ago, when Christ walked to that same hill carrying the wood for his own sacrifice and he purposely and willfully laid down his life for you and me. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 22. This week we're going to look at another event, this week and next week actually, that explains what God has been doing from the point of creation but won't be completed until the point where the church is raptured out. And if you don't believe in the rapture, please come see me. I will try to explain some of that to you. But I believe, as well as a lot of other people do, that every day we are seeing the signs come closer and closer. And it could be today. We don't know. But we're looking forward to that soon, aren't we? Yeah. But we're looking at the picture in Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24, the, I'm just going to give you kind of an overview because it is a long chapter and it repeats itself through 67 verses. 
Genesis chapter 24 opens up with Abraham talking to his servant. And he says, go get a bride for my son Isaac. And the servant says, well, okay, I can go do that. Where you want me to go? Abraham sends him not to the land of the Canaanites, in which he dwelt, but back to his own home country to find a bride for his son. And the servant goes and says, okay, God, it's in your hands. I don't know what I'm going to do, but here's my plan. I'm going to sit here and wait and see if somebody will pour water for the camels. And if that's the person you want me to uh, approach, then uh, work it out. And so he sat there at the well and saw Rebecca come out to draw water. And he asked for water for, from her. She said, yeah, let me get it for you, and I'm going to pour some for your camels. And the, the guy said, okay, maybe this is God working. Said, uh, did some more probing around, found out that um, she was the relative of Abraham. And God had directed his path, the servant's path, to Abraham's family. And eventually, the servant went in, talked with the family, um, said, here's the situation. Abraham is looking for a wife for his son Isaac. Are you willing to be married to somebody that you've never met? Well, the girl, Rebecca, said, well, this is God's will. I'll go ahead and do it. And she agreed, and they hopped on their camels. And don't listen to Don's really bad joke, because um, it's, it's a bad one. So if he tells it to you that Rebecca smoked, um, you, you don't want to go there. Um, but they went on their journey back to the land where Isaac was. And Rebecca and Isaac got married at the end of the chapter. That's a rough overview of what we're looking at here. The best picture we're going to see, though, in the, um, this drama that God has laid out from creation through the book of Revelation is not just going to be found here in Genesis chapter 24, though this is the base picture that we are given in the Bible. The, the best overall understanding is going to come from understanding the Jewish method of betrothal and marriage. And so that's what we're going to look at a little more today. Now there are four major players in this romance drama. Go to the first one, thank you. The four major players. There is the father who initiates the process. The father initiates the process. He is the one that ultimately plans it all. He's the ultimate designer. He's the one who instigates everything in the whole scenario. And his desire is to see his son united with a bride so that they can enjoy a perfect fellowship and oneness. Now, in the story that we see here in, in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham is this father. And we call this kind of a picture of Abraham as a type because he is a representative of our Heavenly Father and 
what the Heavenly Father is doing from creation through revelation, he is seeking a bride for his son. And that's the picture that we're going to see all the way through the Bible here. The second person that is involved is the servant. Now, the servant obeys the Father's commands. This servant is one who is entrusted with this responsibility and this important task because he is faithful. The Father trusts him to do everything that he has told him to do. In this story, the servant goes unnamed. However, if you flip back many chapters to chapter 15 in Genesis, we learn that Abraham's head servant was a man named Eliezer. We know that Abraham sent Eliezer to fetch the bride for his son. The name Eliezer is there in the Bible for a reason. Absolutely everything that is in this book is there for a reason. We may not always understand it, but if you do a little diligent homework, you will figure some things out. God reveals it to us. The name Eliezer means God is my help, and it also has a secondary meaning, which is comforter. The Father's right hand was one called the comforter. Now, in uh, Jewish tradition, this servant that is sent to seek a bride for the son is called a ruach. You don't need to know that particular word necessarily, but you do need to understand the ruach in Hebrew has specific meaning. It means the mind or the spirit or the breath. The servant is called the breath because, or the mind, because he speaks that which is from the master. He has the same mind, the same speech, the same authority as the one who sent him. But he never speaks of himself. His job is to speak what the master has told him to speak and to accomplish the Father's will, and to ensure that all of the attention is given to the Father and the Son, not himself. Now, in this particular passage, the servant of Abraham is a type or a picture of the Holy Spirit. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning, the Spirit of God hovered or brooded over the waters of creation. That word spirit that is used there is this same word, ruach. The spirit of God hovering over creation. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit does not speak of himself. His job is to always point to the Son. And when Jesus talked about sending the Holy Spirit to his his believers, his disciples, he said, I'm going to send you the comforter. 
just as Abraham sent Eliezer the comforter. Go to the next slide, if you will. The next person that is very important in this picture is the bride, obviously. The bride in chapter 24 of Genesis is Rebecca. Her place in the story is simple. She believes the message of the father and the son that the servant brings. And she accepts the gifts that the servant provides in the Lord's name. And she agrees to marry the son whom she's never seen. She leaves her home and her family and is taken by the servant to meet the son where he is and to live with him. And Genesis just... just <coughs> This bride is a type or a picture of the church. And it's significant to note that Rebecca, the, the bride, is a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile, just like us, just like the church. The fourth person that is really important is the son, whom it is all about. Remember, as I mentioned last week, uh, Isaac when he was taken up the hill and he was going to be sacrificed by Abraham. But God provided the substitute so that Isaac wouldn't have to die. Somebody else took his place. At that point in the scripture, Isaac is edited out by the Holy Spirit until the end of cha Genesis chapter 24 when the servant brings his bride to meet him. And again, this is a picture of Jesus Christ in the fact that from the point of the cross, 40 days later, he ascended up to heaven and he is out of the picture physically until the point in the end times when the Holy Spirit brings his bride to meet him in the air and his bride will be forever with him. This is a picture again of how God has laid everything out, a pattern for us. And the next time that we are going to see Jesus Christ, if you're a member of his bride, is when we meet him in the air. Now, obviously, the sun is a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. And this picture is all about him getting his bride, the church. So what is the process of the Jewish wedding? And how does that reflect what God is doing with the church? Now, there are two main points to the Jewish wedding ceremony. The first point is the betrothal, the betrothal period. The second point is the consummation. Today, we are going to look at point number one, the betrothal. Next week, we will look more at the time of the betrothal up to the consummation. What does the process of betrothal look like? Excuse me, I'm going to cough. Let's get rid of that. So in this particular series, we will see a very logical step all the way through. Go to the next slide, if you will. The first part of the process is simple. The father seeks a bride for his son. 
Now note that the bride doesn't initiate the selection. She responds to the offer. That may be a little different than what we see today. Um, we've seen some women taking more of an aggressive role in seeking their own mate. Uh, it's kind of going, gone along with the women's live movement and so forth. But traditionally, that is not the way it worked. In fact, the son didn't seek his own bride either, with a few exceptions. When we talked about this in Sunday school, we pointed out the exception of a guy named Samson who told mom and dad, hey, I saw a good-looking woman. Go get her for me. And we know how that worked out. Um, so it doesn't really usually work out well. But traditionally, it is not the, the bride that seeks the, the groom. It is not the groom that seeks the bride. It is the father that is in charge of making sure that it all happens and that it all happens properly. Everything begins with the father. Now, the bride and the groom still have a say in the matter. That's important to know. They have choice. But all of the arrangements are made by the father. Anybody remember Fiddler on the Roof? Have you? It's all about tradition. Father's in charge. If the father could not seek the proper bride for him, his son himself, the father would entrust that process to a ruach, to a servant, to go do it for him. And that's one of the roles that the Holy Spirit gives us today is that the Holy Spirit is drawing out a people for the bride. John chapter four, 6, verse 44, it says that no man can come unto me except the Father draw him. Jesus saying, you can't choose me unless God has called you to come to me. The next step in the process, if you will, the Father or the servant, spirit, and the son go to the woman's door and knock on her door. And they ask to be let in. It's a very important step because the bride has an option of saying, no, I don't want anything to do with you. Go away. And the father and the son would turn around and walk away. Jesus is not the kind of person that will kick the door in. In fact, if you don't want anything to do with Jesus, he will let you not have anything to do with him. But if the bride wanted to hear the offer and understand what was being given and presented to her, she would let them in and they would come in together and they would sit down and have a meal together. Does this remind you of maybe Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens up, I will come in and I will eat with you. I will dine with you. And I will present my case with you. Which is what it was about. 
So the bride has, at this point has the option of, I want to listen or I don't want to listen. If the bride does want to listen, the next step in the process, the price for the bride was determined. A price is negotiated as payment for the bride. Often this price, this dowry, or in Hebrew, this mohar, was something that included valuables more than just money. But the key here to understand is that this established exactly how precious that bride was to the groom. The more he values the bride, the more he is willing to pay for her. on to the next step, if you will, because we're going to run out of time and I'm going to run out of voice. The next step in the process is a legal contract is drawn up. Now, this legal contract is a really beautiful document, and it had to be accessible to the bride continuously. She was never to be um, denied access to this document. This document outlined the history of both the groom and the bride. So each of their histories was put into a document. It stated the responsibilities of the bride and the groom. And it provided in written form all of the promises from the groom to the bride. Everything that he said, he would supply all of her needs. And that document was to be witnessed by two other people. Go on to the next one, if you will. The next step in the process is the groom would share a cup of wine with the bride. Now, the, the groom would pour this wine himself. And it was to be shared only with the bride. It wasn't to be shared with the rest of the family. This was symbolizing that the groom and the bride were entering into a blood covenant together. A blood covenant is a covenant that cannot be undone. Once it is done, it is permanent. Like you cannot unspill blood. The bride at this point has another choice. She's listened to the offer. She's understood that there is a price being paid for her. And she has a choice now to accept this payment for her and accept this contract, this blood covenant, or to reject it. If she refuses this cup and says, no, I don't want to drink of that cup, then the deal is off. At that point, the father and the son pack up and they go home. But if you've reached this point and you reject, that is a tremendous insult to the father and the son. But if she drinks that cup, accepting the bridegroom's 
offer of payment and all of his promises to her, then she enters into this covenant relationship and the two are officially married at that point, even though it's not yet consummated. At this point, if she drinks that cup, her fate is sealed. The marriage cannot be ended without a divorce, and only that can happen under specific causes. And only the bridegroom could initiate a divorce. The bride can never divorce the groom. Her fate is sealed if she accepts that covenant. She belongs to him. That's one of the great things about this is that we, in this story we also see the eternal salvation, the fact that you cannot lose your salvation once you have truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ. We are secure because only he can initiate a divorce and he ain't going to do that. Go to the next slide, if you will. The next portion of the process is the groom would put a veil on the bride. This bride would never step out of her house without this veil on. It symbolizes the fact that she was set apart for her groom alone. And it also obscured her from the world. Because the world, when they looked at her, would never see her clearly. They couldn't understand who she really was. But she was designated as her husband's only. Of the groom's commitment to clothe and provide for his bride. At this point, everything is done. Go to the next slide. The next part is the groom leaves and he goes back to the father's house to prepare a place for her. But he leaves her with promises such as, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to come back and get you and take you to where I am so that we can be together forever. Fear not. Now this period of time would normally be between one and two years unless they were betrothed as children. This period was a period of preparation training to learn what a, a wife's duties and roles are. It's a period of testing to make sure that she was faithful. And if anybody was to question her during this period of time when they were separated, saying, you know, what's going on? I thought you were going to get married. The answer would be, no one knows the date and hour when he's going to come back for us. Again, everything was under the father's control. 
Uh, we will see that again next week. The Father is in control of the timing of the entire process. Next week, we're going to look at the, the time in between and the, and the return for the bride. But what does this mean to me today? Everybody in here, I'm confident, has chosen to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you're familiar with the Bible, so this picture is really quite obvious. But I'm going to draw it out a little bit anyway. Genesis shows us that in the beginning, God provided a wife, a bride, for Adam, the first man. And the Bible closes in Revelation with God providing a bride for the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, comes knocking on each person's door, as we said in Revelation 3.20. And he won't kick down the door if he's not welcome. But if anyone is willing to listen, he will come in and dine with them and explain to them the entire process. Jesus shows us how valuable we as a bride are to him. Because he paid the ultimate price. He gave more than anybody could ever have. More than you and I are ever worth. To purchase us. Because he values us. He loves us. More than anything else in creation. God has drawn up a beautiful marriage contract. If you haven't realized it, it's right here. We're never without it. If we choose to, we have access to it. It outlines who God is. It outlines who we are. Our history. It shows our lineage. It details our responsibilities before God. And it outlines God's responsibilities and promises to us. And his promises can't be broken. As communion shows us, Jesus poured out his blood like wine so that anyone who wants this eternal life simply has to accept it. And then Jesus, when he left us, left us with promises, saying, I'm going to come get you. And where I am, you're going to be. And you'll be with me forever. Those things that he said would happen before his coming are coming to pass. We see it every day. In fact, there is really no prophecy left over that needs to be fulfilled before Christ returns. So that's good news because that means that it could be now. It could be another thousand years from now, but I'm not counting on that because that's not the picture I see in the scriptures. I see it coming very soon. But he is only coming for his bride. Jesus gave us several parables and it's repeated throughout the scriptures. You're either in the bride or you're outside. You are either part of the bride of Christ or you're going to miss it all. 
Have you made that choice today? And we're going to close with this question. Are you part of the bride? Or are you one of the ones that's going to be left outside? You can know that today if you hear his voice, if you hear him knocking. I want you to come talk to me. And I will share with you how you can have that eternal salvation and that eternal security that you're going to be with him forever. Let's all stand. Next week we will go through the rest of this process. I won't close with a word of a song because I cannot sing. But I am going to ask, Brother John, would you mind coming up here and closing us in a word of prayer? I'm going to get you a microphone. Oh, great and heavenly Father, we thank you. You've made your sacrifice for our sins. You gave us our only shot at real life. You provided for us, and your promises are written for us. We are grateful and we are, for those who have not yet accepted your, your gifts, know that he is at the door, he's knocking. But for those of us who have accepted his gifts, we've accepted great, great gifts from him far more than anything we'll receive here on earth. And we are truly grateful for that. We humbly ask that you guide and protect us, dear Lord, and help us on our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.